Uh, As far as wisdom goes, it's a really interesting thing for me. Um, If you'll turn to James, I want to just pick up on a little thing that James says and, and, and try and use it to bridge into something. But James talks about wisdom right at the beginning of his book. And... James is right after Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. So it goes Hebrews and then James. And right in the beginning of James, he's, he's saying something that sounds very paradoxical. And I think the more mature Christian we become, more mature Christians we become, the more we begin to understand that this, this paradox, this, this tension actually holds true that, that as Christians, we're able to grow into the ability to consider our, our trials, the very difficult things in life, as being joy because there's something that we desire greater than, than comfort, okay? Trials, uncomfortable things, rob us of our pleasure and our joy, and if comfort is the end, if it's the goal, if it's what it all aims toward, then we can't really be content in that. We can't really see it as a good thing. We can't rejoice in it. But if we realize that Sometimes in the most difficult seasons, when our comfort is being challenged the most, it brings about something greater, uh, namely our maturity, then we can kind of rejoice in these trials. A lot like uh, a workout, or a lot like getting ready for a marathon, a lot like stressing your body, knowing that it's going to produce something greater. And James speaks to that kind of maturity, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you're faced uh, with trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, which means if you're immature, you're lacking something. It seems obvious, but we kind of need to hold on to that. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom... He or she should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Okay, so in our faith, we're supposed to, if we lack wisdom, ask God, and he will give generously to all without finding fault. It's a seemingly easy little verse, isn't it? God, the the God who created the world, God who's so big, God who's sovereign, God who's overall, that that has all knowledge, has all wisdom, that that if you need, you should ask, and God will dispense that wisdom uh, without finding fault. He'll kind of give it to you, and it just seems pretty mechanical, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, need to interact a little bit. We're all fall asleep right in front of you. So it seems pretty mechanical, right? The interesting thing about wisdom is this. It's actually what the reformers used to call um, means of grace. Okay? The reformers used to talk about means of grace. And what they meant by means of grace was what are the things by which God gives grace to people? So his grace, the thing which nourishes and sustains and and quickens us and brings life and brings happiness and joy, all these things, his grace, 
not just existing up there, but when it comes and infuses your life, what are the means by which that grace enters into your life? And, and we talked about, like the reformers would talk about baptism and communion and these kinds of things as being means of grace. They're, they're things that happen by which God's grace kind of comes into and we, we partake of it in a certain sense. Now here's the fascinating thing about wisdom. It's a means of grace. How do we get that? How do we get wisdom as a means of grace? Here's how we get that. God is a king and he sits enthroned over all. He's God, he's supreme, he's king. And when you have a king, you have this interesting phrase and it's, um, the word is pleasure. You guys ever watch those TV shows and the old movies with pharaohs and things like that and they'll always talk about um, whatever the king's pleasure is or it is my pleasure or if it's your pleasure, king. You know what I'm talking about? Because whatever they please is what's enacted and what is done. It's what becomes policy. It's what has um, effectual power. It, it goes out and becomes. So whatever they please, whatever brings them pleasure, is what happens. Okay, we all good there? God, as a king, has pleasures. God has things that bring him pleasure. And as, as a being, we're made in his image, so as a being, a person that has pleasures, he delights, God delights in giving or dispensing things that are according to his pleasure. So this king is saying, it is my pleasure, it is according to my my pleasure, what I desire, what I delight in, what I take joy in, what I, what I find good and exciting, my pleasure. It is according to my pleasure in this world that I give wisdom to people. This is how I want to order things. This is how I want the world to go. This is how I want my relationship with people to be run. I want it to be such that I give wisdom to them. It's my pleasure. And it's God's pleasure because it's good. When we get wisdom, when we receive wisdom, it allows us to grow and mature and become more like uh, God in his image. Fuller. When I have my kids, I can give them what they need, I can give them what they want, or I can grow them up so that they have the capacity to understand, to do, to choose, to determine. And in growing them up, instead of just meeting their needs, they become more mature. They become in a better position to be in an in a interdependent, healthy, mature relationship with me. Does that make sense? Okay. And as a parent, I delight in the discipleship of my kids. I delight in taking my daughter, and we were at the beach and it just so happened to be my oldest daughter, you know, is a great big sister. It might sound really cheesy, but that means something to me, right? It's late. We're on the Santa Cruz boardwalk. It's cold. And we stop for a minute. The rest of the family's back. And we turned at just the moment that this other family was there. A little kid was crying um, because her sweatshirt got wet in the bathroom. I mean, this is like 10 o'clock at night. And the big sister is probably about 11 or 12, just takes her sweatshirt off, plops it on the, the kid's sister who's just crying because she's cold and, and sweatshirt got wet. 
And, and I'm there with my oldest daughter, and we saw that happen, unfold, just at that moment. It was really cool. Was, I mean, it was just crystal clear. And I told, my da- I told Mary Joy, I was like, when you are a good big sister to your sisters, that's what it looks like. Like, it looks that cool. It looks that good and that right and that, like, oh, amazing. And she got what I'm always talking about with big sister and be a big sister. I mean, she got the picture. And that moment right there, my whole vacation was worth that moment right there. That discipleship of my daughter, helping her understand and realize life, growing in maturity, growing in wisdom, okay, so that we are on the same page and so that she can be a better person. That, I delight in that. It's according to my pleasure. I would choose that moment over other moments. God is the same way with us. He delights, it is his pleasure, it is his desire to take and to to give wisdom to us that we would grow, that we would mature, that we would be able to better understand him, the world, relationships, what's going on, better be able to process and have the fruit of the spirit um, so that we're not always freaked out by circumstances, all those kinds of things that go with wisdom and maturity. God delights, it's his pleasure to give that to us. God who gives all things. The Father of heavenly lights, it says, who delights to give all these good gifts to his kids. Okay, that's scripture. So God now gives wisdom, this good gift to his kids. It's a means of grace. It's a a way in which he gives grace to us, which changes us, nurtures us, grows us, sustains us, helps us become more like Christ. And the crazy thing about wisdom is it's like that thing that we always say, it's so important, you know, that it becomes so routine that we say it all the time and then pretty soon it just passes out of your mind. Like, you know, if energy is a real big thing to you and, and you're a parent, you're always talking about like turn off the lights. If that's really important to you, it doesn't seem that important. I need a better analogy, but like buckle your seatbelt or whatever. Like things that are important can become so routine that they become meaningless through the routine even though they have or are supposed to have so much meaning in them. Wisdom is one of these things. It's, in some sense, the greatest, or one of the greatest of all things that we can aspire to. Love being, obviously, one of the others in faith. But wisdom is one of the greatest things we can aspire to. Solomon, when he was given a, a request, asked for wisdom, the greatest of wisdom. God was so delighted, again, to give it to him, that he might be a wise ruler, that he gave him that and all these other things rolled in. But wisdom is one of these great things that we can aspire to. Yet it just sounds so boring and, and old and not urgent and not necessarily helpful that it becomes like buckle your seatbelt and we lose sight of it. <clears throat> and when we do that, we lose sight of a means of grace, a means by which God works in our life and gives us things that he delights that are according to his pleasure. Can you guys get the the process there? Okay. So if that's true, here's just two thoughts and then we'll transition. If that's true, if it's God's pleasure to give wisdom and it's a means of grace by which we take, receive grace and are changed that way, how should we then live? How should we then live? And it's a fascinating thing. We've gotten to such an urgent 
but we're such an urgent right now culture that we react to circumstances um, in the here and now and we go from one crisis to the next and we react, 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 that we've patterned ourselves to always demand or expect or desire God to intervene in each and every crisis that we have. That is a mark of immaturity. We've baptized it and we call it a mark of spiritual maturity. You're more, it's like um, we could go back and talk about the Gnostic heresy in the early church, but the whole idea of the Gnostic heresy was the word Gnostic came from the word um, gnosis with a G, but gnosis which meant knowledge, and the Gnostics were saying we have direct knowledge from God. We don't need the kind of sacred texts. We don't need all these other kinds of things. We have this mystical knowledge, this direct connection with God. And, and we've gotten to this kind of thing where we, we've so valued that, this direct connection with God and, and the desire for prophetic words and the desire for divine intervention in everything going on in our life, literally every day, 20 times a day, that if we could get that and if we have that, that somehow makes us of a different caliber of, of spiritual maturity and that when this is available, we don't really want to put time or energy investing into other things. We want to focus our energy here. And there's an element of that which is really good. There's an element that can take us and make us really out of balance because it has been God's pleasure and design not to create a world where every crisis and every need was met through divine intervention. That was not his pleasure. His pleasure was not to answer or to solve or to speak into every particular issue, but to work with us, his children, and to interact with us and to develop our sense of discernment and to develop our wisdom such that we could grow and mature and be able to understand things more and more, approximate more and more the way he would want us to understand things. It's a really difficult tension we're, we're kind of stepping into right there, isn't it? Here's where it goes. We need to value wisdom. We need to value discipleship. We need to value intentional situations and relationships where people grow in maturity and develop wisdom that's part of God's plan. We need to ask God not always for the answer. According to James, oftentimes what we need to ask God for is human wisdom and decision-making abilities. What are the applications of that? I don't know. I mean, you guys figure it out on your own. But we have to, as a church, realize that if we're always running to the urgent with the math homework, God, give us the answer to this math equation. But we never ask God, we never intentionally pursue a course by which God is going to teach us math, that we're cutting out one of the means of grace that God has planned for us to have. All right, so here's where I want to I switch because what I want to do is I want to try to apply a little wisdom to some cultural realities. The first thing we have to understand is that wisdom is parasitic on knowledge. What do I mean by that? Wisdom is parasitic on knowledge. Wisdom is a decision-making ability 
that takes into account God's desires, God's character, God's plan. It takes into account past history, takes into account having the relevant pieces of information on the table with which to discern what the best course of action is. But wisdom has a relationship with, a necessary relationship with knowledge. Knowledge is important. That's why in the, in the book of Proverbs, we are equally told to pursue wisdom just as we're, we're told to pursue knowledge, that these things, they're both required, they're both needed. And so we have to go after knowledge if we're also gonna have wisdom. It's one of the pieces of why we do Kilns College. If you're sitting in a church and you're like, man, what does a college have to do with church? What is the relationship? Why would we invest time? Why would we even bother with it? Well, this is one of the parts of it. If we wanna build up and grow a group of people that hopefully get to enjoy the blessings of God, the means of grace, God working in their life, we have to value knowledge, we have to value learning, we have to pursue it, again, like the book of Proverbs talks about. So one of the things we have to do is we have to value knowledge. The other thing we have to do is we have to look deeper into the more difficult parts of decision-making, which have to do with paradigms and our sense of identity. Motives, how we see ourselves, um, our paradigms and grids for seeing the world shape how we interpret data, how we discern things, and therefore ultimately how we make either wise or unwise choices. So I want to show you a graph I saw on vacation here um, that, that kind of just, I couldn't walk away from it, just kept thinking about it over and over and over. Um, this first graph is a graph of the Catholic Church over the last 20 years. And this is state by state, and it's either the increase or the decrease in the Catholic Church over 20 years. So you guys kind of get the idea of it? Over here on the, the end, it looks like Montana at about negative 16% growth rate in 20 years. These are states where the Catholic Church actually gained ground percentage-wise in the last 20 years. A lot of it um, through immigration. Catholic immigration, uh, Hispanic immigration. But I saw this and I was just kind of like, wow, 20 years is not a lot of time to, to, in some sense, lose all this ground. And so my thought was, this was on a USA Today article and it popped up and so I was kind of thinking it through. And my first thought was, and tell me if you had the same thought. Well, it kind of makes sense. It's the Catholic Church. They've, they've had a couple scandals. You know what I mean? So it's like, ah, oh, well, I can see that. But then there was this little tab over there and it was like a flash graph kind of thing so that you could see different graphs. And so I was like, well, this makes sense for the Catholic Church. And then the next one was the Protestant Christian faiths. And so I was like, oh, I'm curious what that shows. So I clicked on that. Here's this graph. The, the range on the end here, by the way, is 20, negative 20%. Negative 20%. This is just 20 years. Just 20 years. And so I saw, I saw this and I was just like, wow, um, I'm a pastor. Maybe that was a bad decision. This looks like a bad investment. Like <laughs> this is a negative growth rate, you know, like I got to change careers, you know. Um, but the actual thing is, is my calling and my job are one and the same. I'm blessed that way. I mean, I have friends that doesn't matter whether you're in the secular world, the sacred, you know, whatever. There's a lot of people that have their job and they, they feel like or they get to experience their job is their calling. Um, and I'm one of those people. 
you know, and it's super cool that way. And, and I know some of you don't feel that way. Um, but so I, I, I obsess on, on this kind of stuff on vacation, not because I'm trying to work on vacation, but because I care about it. It matters to me. I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And so I see this and I'm like, wow, just 20 years. So I've thought about it, thought about it. And so getting ready for this morning and we're talking about child dedication, I wanted to try and unpack this a little bit and say, how is this happening? Why is this happening? And then from a wisdom standpoint, what should we as a church, as a community of Christians, be looking at doing or how, how should we be looking at responding in wisdom? Okay, so I want to read Deuteronomy 6. So if you'll turn there with me, we'll start by reading Deuteronomy 6. It's a famous passage. We've read it before. We, we tend to read it before all child dedications. It's, it's a passage that has a name, the Shema. In, in, in the Hebrew culture, it was the Shema. It was, it was the definitive passage for Hebrew education all the way going up. And so, I mean, when you have a passage of Scripture that's got its own little name, you know it's really important. I made that up. I mean, it seems like it makes sense, though. All right, in, in verse 4 of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, here's what we read. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And then it continues on. But this passage is famous for two things. It's it has in this, the Lord is one. Now love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Jesus would refer back to this over and over again. When he was asked, what are we really doing here? What, what are we doing with this Jewish faith? What are we doing in trying to follow God? What's the most important thing? It's, it's fascinating because what Jesus basically said was, you guys know the answer to that. You've been taught it your whole life. You've grown up hearing it. You've grown up reciting it. You know the answer to it. You've just gotten so used to hearing it, you don't understand the weight of it, the gravity of it. And so it's amazing how Jesus would just point him back to what they already knew. And he would say it's simply there. It's in Scripture. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, how are we going to make sure that this is the most dominant part, that this is at the core of, of faith and at the core of the spiritual community? Well, that's going to happen because these commandments are to be upon your hearts. You're to impress them on your children. You're to talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. It's a lot like, for me, the CD was, that Christian CD was on vacation. Um, as you're driving through Wendy's drive through as you're going through the middle of nowhere, as you're going through the redwoods, it's talking about these things. It's having them go round and round in your mind, and they become something that gets impressed in on you. It goes deep, it sinks deep, and then it latches into your heart at the core of your being. It begins to shape your identity. So there's two things I want to draw out of this. 
This passage speaks absolutely to the primacy of God being at the center of all things. God is at the center of all things. The word we use for that is sovereign. He is over all things. He is above all things. God is sovereign. It's absolutely essentially clear God is there. Whatever your problems are in life today, I don't know what the, the specific solution is to all those problems, but I guarantee you that one part in making it better is making sure that God's at the center and that, that some other side concern, periphery concern, isn't dominating your thinking. I just, I don't care what the case is, even if you need meds, which some of you might need. Your situation will be better if you understand the right ordering of this universe where God, God's character, God's priorities, what God says is at the center. The relationship with God is at the center and then everything else is on the periphery. And so this passage unmistakably puts God at the center. The second thing is this. You are gonna learn that over and over and over and over and over again. Everything about life, every situation, every, every scraped knee, every difficult trial, everything that doesn't go your way, every hope that's dashed, every joy, every moment on the boardwalk where you see some random girl help her kid's sister, everything about life is going to come back and reinforce this idea that God is at the center, that love dominates and pervades this universe, and that we respond to that. We respond to God being primary. We respond to love being at the center. Everything about life is going to come back and reinforce that. By way of parity of reasoning, everything in life is going to reinforce that we are not at the center. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm, where I'm getting that from? When everything is being reinforced that God is at the center, that love should pervade the whole thing, that we love God with our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, everything, what's being reinforced here is a direct object, but there's something indirectly being enforced as well. And that's that the world does not revolve around you. Okay. Now, I want to take those two things and I want to step back and now I want to analyze a little bit of what's been going on culturally in America. When you take a look at culture, you can kind of take 20-year snapshots and really see how it moves. I've been reading some books by futurists, and that doesn't mean like palm readers. It means people that, that take and look at culture where it's gone, they understand deep trends, and they project forward and see where it's going and things like that. It's fascinating science in some sense. But you take 20-year snapshots, and you can really see some changes in what's going on. But I want to take a look at the change from 1950 to 1970 and point out one thing and then take it to 1990 and then till today, that 20-year gap. In the 1950s, you have a church that is in the biggest growth spurt kind of in American cultural history, upswing that we've seen in a long time. Post-World War II, middle of the Cold War, it's when a lot of the In God We Trust ended up on our paper currency. Did you know that? Under Eisenhower? I mean, I, I grew up thinking, man, it was like the settlers put that on the paper bills. You know what I mean? It's actually in the 50s, the paper bills. Um, in God We Trust became the motto. Under Eisenhower, Congress passed it, 1950s. So in the 50s, you have 
culturally this dominant thing that in some sense our duty to country and our duty to God are wrapped up and they're, they're all underneath this idea of obligation, of duty, of, of cultural realities that we, we naturally submit to. And that's just a part of kind of how it is. Now, it doesn't mean the 50s are perfect. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that, that the cultural reality that everybody was operating under was this was something that had a, a center of gravity to your life. Okay, it was something that you valued. It was something that even if you didn't obey it or follow it, it was something that you still put there as a placeholder culturally um, for Americans or for us or for, for people in the church. Okay, and we're talking generalizations, okay? You go from there, fast forward to 19, the 1970s. 1970s look a lot different than the 1950s. A lot different. Um, it's amazing how the political generations struggled to catch up with the changes. I mean, you go from in the early 60s, you know, ask not what your country can do for you to what you can do for your country. And there's that language and that idea of duty to later on with Nixon, Nixon completely not understanding that emergent generation and culture that didn't share his same sense of duty and obligation to country or the same sense of duty and obligation to submission to authority. I mean, Nixon just for the life of him couldn't wrap his mind around it. You go back and look at things he said and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's just a interesting paradox. So you get a real clash of culture. Now, stylistically, how did that look in the church? It reduced down to this. Can we have drums in church? The stylistic conflict of the 70s was really worship, music. Can we have drums? Can we have guitars? Um, a part of that might have been, you know, with the Jesus movement with Chuck Swindoll in California, can, can you have long hair and not dress up? But you see, we see the manifestation of this clash with style, okay? You fast forward 20 years to the 90s, this is when I was in seminary, what's the dominant question there? Can you have candles? Who is the audience? Is it is church for believers or is it for unbelievers? A movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. And you see another movement saying, hey, uh, corporate America and the management culture has taught us a lot of lessons, basically Walmart lessons. And we can take a lot of those same principles and bring them to church and our constituency will react in a certain kind of way, a favorable light. It'll be a healthy situation for the church to make the constituency happy. Okay, um, so there's a, an interesting thing coming in, but you see stylistically a continuation of what you see really has to do again with guitars and drums and lights and jokes and self-help uh, application points and, and these kinds of things at a stylistic level. You fast forward 20 years from there and you see this graph on August 22nd, 2010. And you wonder, with all the, the knowledge and with all the style going in favor of where people are at and with all the good leadership techniques and with, with everything happening, how do we go from the 90s to today with that kind of a substantial change in people making church a part of their, their culture, a part of their family life, a part of their own life, something they, they value, submit to, go to, even would it claim on a survey, that kind of thing. 
How did, what happened there? And the thing that we do is we tend to see style, and what we don't understand is the shift in substance. Okay? And beneath all these style changes is a substantial change, the bottom of the iceberg that's going on, a shift going on in culture that the church never really identified, and I don't think till now has really tried to deal with. Okay, and so let's go back to the 50s again, 1955, Disneyland. Just, I don't know what I'm saying about that, but it, it, it's like it marks the beginning of something, right? 1955, Disneyland, I think you begin to see a bunch of changes that are born out in the 70s generation, okay? The 70s generation, according to historian Andrew Del Banco, is an, one of three defining moments in the life of America and Americans in terms of what we see as sovereign. What we see as the ordering principle of our life or our national life. And so it comes right back to our verse in Deuteronomy where we're talking about God being sovereign. But it, Andrew Del Banco, he's a social historian, but he says the driving thing originally for Americans was that God was sovereign. Even people that weren't Christians, that were deists and believed in a creator God, there was still this idea of God's sovereignty. And they fast forward and he says um, the Civil War effectively, uh, kind of after the Civil War up until about the 1900s, um, that shifted from God being the ordering principle, God being sovereign, to the nation being sovereign. Putting the, the states back after the Civil War, uh, Charles, Charles Darwin, 1859, writing Origin of the Species, and then after Civil War, it comes to America, and, and threatening, in some sense, the conception of God's uh, sovereignty as creator. Uh, we become expansionistic. We become imperialistic as a nation. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, kind of the culmination of this. And so with Teddy Roosevelt, we see now this national identity, this manifest destiny, this idea of America um, as this driving thing that, that rallies everything else around it. That grows, in, and after World War II, it's as strong as it ever was. This sense of duty, the sense of um, America being this thing that we owe an allegiance to. You guys understand where that's going? So it goes from God. When God kind of goes away, it has to be replaced by something because there has to be something that holds the center of gravity that's replaced by this idea of America, God's country, and, and, and this sense of duty to nation. That goes up until the 70s. So Disneyland, 1955, we birthed this generation in the, in the 70s that get disenchanted with leaders, with country, and when country goes is the ordering principle that we have duty or allegiance to and, and it's no longer sovereign, what does it get replaced with? Self. So Delbanco would mark off the 70s as the, begin of the th beginning of the third kind of season in American national identity where the self really dominates and is the ordering principle. I don't have time to go into it, but we all know this to be true. The thing today is to differentiate yourself. You know, I think in the 50s it was get a haircut like everybody else. Now it's like at age eight, get your tattoos, you know, and differentiate yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? I'm just saying we understand this idea of, 
of defining self as being distinct. Why? Because if it's not distinct, it's not valuable. And if it's not valuable, the ordering principle, the sovereign thing, the, the thing that's, that's got the center of gravity isn't really, doesn't have much gravity. And so instead of duty to country, duty to God, duty to something outside of oneself, we differentiate ourselves and we try and define ourselves and build value by making ourselves distinct and unique. We, we all know this because we live in it. Okay, So while the 1970s stylistically brought up drums, and then in the 90s it was how do we keep everybody happy? And how do we use leadership techniques to, to make the customer always right? Because if you have it your way, you're going to walk out of church happy and satisfied. If you're happy and satisfied, there won't be conflict. Giving will be up. Building programs continue on. And, and it all kind of works. Okay? But what we never dealt with from the 70s on is drums or no drums really doesn't matter. Um, business techniques are just business techniques. Candles are just, you know, we, what we never really dealt with is that at rock bottom in the American cultural identity, a shift happened in the 70s that affected not just non-Christians but Christians itself and cut at the heart of what is the essence of of the Christian faith. And the thing that allows for us to all congeal around and have this thing called the body of Christ, the church, where we're all invested interdependently in this thing. And that thing that happened was the sovereign self. We, we, we talk about give your life away a lot because the spiritual life with God begins with laying down the sovereignty of self. With, with killing, in some sense, that self that wants to magnify and glorify itself. And laying that down and saying, as I give this away, I'll receive real life. Because when I've got at the center, it changes everything. And the kind of peace, the shalom, the way it's supposed to be, what really is good in life, those things that are really going to fulfill can only happen when these puzzle pieces fit the right way, which means self, myself, has to be on the side, the periphery. We, we didn't deal with that. In some sense, we catered to it. The church in America went through a midlife crisis. Here's what happens in a midlife crisis. You're a part of the consumeristic rat race. You get to your 40s. You realize that time is flying by. You haven't invested enough time into your kids the way you would have wanted. You don't necessarily feel you're the person you wanted to become. There's really a, a vacuum of meaning and you begin to realize I only have one life and there's only this much time left, it creates a crisis, a yearning, a searching, a depression, all these kinds of things because of this void of meaning, because we've been bounced around in this consumeristic world. And so what do we do? What's the typical American thing to do in that midlife crisis? It's not to identify the root problem. It's to try and cure the symptoms by applying the same logic that got us there. Impulse buying. Enter in the sports car. The hobby, the whatever it is. So when we hit the midlife crisis, men especially know this, we end up trying to just go big and, and think that if we just increase the size with which we're operating in this consumeristic world, we get the boat, we get the toys, we get the whatever, that that will somehow fill this void, this hunger that we've got. 
We don't realize that it's not stuff and it's not getting and it's not doing that's the problem. It's the actual opposite. We were created to give away. We were created to fill other vacuums in God's kingdom, not take things and stuff it into the vacuum within ourselves. We were meant to take our gifts and our talents and our humor and our personality and our leadership, all these different kinds of things that God gave us and leverage them. And when we leverage them, you begin to see the fruit of that. And that fruit and the, and the pleasure knowing that God is being pleased with you and what you're doing. And this is written all over the New Testament. Jesus' words speak this over and over again, this idea of you're a steward, you're a bondservant, you're here to do what God wants in this relationship. And when this relationship's working, God is pleased with you and you are in the spot you were meant to fill and there's a joy that comes from that. And so the church, like the middle-aged guy, instead of dealing with the self, the sovereignty of self underneath the surface, setting itself up in some sense against the sovereignty of God, instead of dealing with that, we felt like the way to keep succeeding, like, like, like selling futures, was to people want, they have these felt needs, we, we all know what our felt needs are. I mean, we're, we're all trying to help self. So we're very aware, aware of what will help self. And we come in very aware of what self needs, wants, desires. And, and self dominates our thinking. And well, if people are thinking that way and needing that way and asking questions that way, let's give them biblical principles. Self-help Christian principles. So that they can go be good Christians. I almost said something I shouldn't right there. The, so worshiping themselves with self on the, the altar and, and the, on the throne, magnifying self, trying to become great, trying to become more, trying to have their own glory, completely independent from where they're supposed to be located in this universe, in the body of Christ, with him as the head. With that starting point, instead of challenging that starting point, we feed into it. Here's some great wisdom bits. Here's some great little programs. And here's some whatever. So the fascinating thing is, is that if you really follow this stuff, in the, 90, the 80s is when the, the seeker-sensitive movement was born and church growth was really born, 80s in a major way, into the 90s. But only just a couple years ago, arguably the guy that helped found the seeker-sensitive movement said, he literally said on video in front of her, I was wrong. After 20-something years now, the fruit isn't there. People's lives aren't changed. They weren't discipled. There's no depth to them. And so you got the leading institution, church institution that way, changing and saying, we've got to rethink this because our, our philosophy of ministry wasn't bearing any fruit. And I would argue because it was just feeding right into this bottom-level cultural thing, this paradigm that we have of self at the center. So applying wisdom. If we're a church that's going to try to act and think and process in a wise way, in a mature way, and we see those statistics, and we see a little bit of the cultural realities that are going on, how do we act? 
what do we do? The, the, the number one thing that I think we have to do is we have to stop. We have to repent of selfishness, of materialism, of consumerism, of coming into God's kingdom of churches, of the Christian community and saying, what can I get? What can I receive? What do I want? And never really thinking, how can I help? Where can I serve? What can I give? Recognizing that a body, there's only one thing in the body that feeds on the body but gives nothing in return. You know what that's called? It's called cancer. We have to first repent as Christians of our materialism. As churches, as church leaders, as pastors, we have to repent of leading and feeding into that materialism because it works and it builds big church buildings. And we have to repent from that and we have to go back to the starting point and say, God began this whole thing by saying, look, I am at the center. I am relative to everything So relativism and individualism have hollowed out the American church. Relativism is, ah, is God relative to this or not? Maybe some other faith is relative to this, but it's, in in some sense, there is nothing absolute or fixed about God's worth, truth, and value. And everything becomes relative. And relativism, God being at the center, God being sovereign, and individualism, just completely even looking outside of ourselves and saying, how do I feed my belly and maximize myself and my own glory? (laughs) Relativism, individualism, and we've got to say those things have to be rooted out if we're going to have a, a clean foundation with which to build a church on that's going to bear fruit that, that disciples are actually going to be made in. We need to not just be driving programs. We need to be investing in discipleship. I'm not going to go into this right now, but in the 90s is when Al Gore invented the internet. And, and so if we're talking in 20-year spans... I mean, it's literally only 15-ish plus years ago that it really hit. Isn't that remarkable? Absolutely, from a grand narrative perspective, remarkable. Um, social media has, has forever changed the church. Some person that you haven't talked to for 20 years since high school that you weren't even friends with back then knows more about your kids than the person six people over on, on that row. And some person you met once at a trade show knows more about your hopes, fears, aspirations, desires, and the things that, that you're doing in your life than somebody sitting, you know, two people in front of you because they see it pop up on your status reports. I mean, that has forever altered this idea of community and how that works. And we've got to not become defensive because it's never a good thing. We have to go into it and say there's opportunity here. How do we redeem it? How do we redeem social media? But there are these macro trends going on that as a church, we have to be wise to and not just keep trying to make everybody happy and, and sing great songs. 